We have uh, two more Fruit of the Spirit left, and today we're talking about gentleness. And as uh, Brittany was talking today in worship about how we're not perfect, but Jesus is, how God is, I thought that is really the essence of today. Because God is perfect, we can be gentle. Because God is perfect, we don't have to take situations and matters into our own hands. We don't have to be assertive as the world talks about assertiveness. Gentleness in Scripture is really power under control. It's used many times in, um, in Greek literature, the language of the New Testament, to describe wild horses that were brought under control. So there's nothing really to be uh, admired about this brute, raw strength that can't be controlled. But amazing strength that is brought under control is what Scripture talks about. So contrary to this idea that gentle or meek means powerless, means uh, indefensible, uh, gentleness is having the power and the ability to do anything but using discretion and restraint in love. And so what we're talking about today is trusting God and waiting upon him. Rather than attempting to take matters into our own hands, it's about resting in his ability rather than attempting to assert our own strength. It's about trusting his plan rather than feeling that we have to constantly be controlling people and circumstances. We've all met people that are just constantly trying to control situations, control people, and they're just out of their mind unless they're making that call. Gentleness is the opposite of that. And, and Christians ought to be the best advertisements for the Lord in that we are at peace. We have the peace that surpasses all understanding because we're not running around trying to manipulate everything, control everything, people in situations, because we believe that God is in control. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That, that word in the Greek uh, means gentle in spirit or meek. And it is about meekness towards God meaning that we accept his dealings with us as good without disputing or resisting. That's hard for me. I, most of the time I trust that God's dealings are good, but I'm constantly monologuing with him, you know, filling him in on what he should have done or what I feel like he should have done. So a lot of times I have a lot of disputing and resisting. In the Old Testament, the meek are those who completely rely on God rather than their own strength, to defend um, themselves against injustice. Therefore, meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries that they inflict and that he is using them to purify his people and that he will deliver his people in his time. That's why I've cautioned sometimes when I, when I hear Christians in particular talk about you know people in our world that are evil and horrible and how we just need to do away with them or remove them. Because, friends, there's a lot of times where we are just like Israel and God is using them to purify us and to refine us and to teach us lessons. And so not all of the evil that happens in the world is just horrible and by chance and we should eradicate it. A lot of that is divinely used. God is permitting it and allowing it for our development and our transformation. The last uh, aspect of gentleness is that Gentleness or meekness is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust 
in God's goodness and control over the situation, the gentle person, because of the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, is not occupied with self at all. So gentle people are some of the selfless people in the world because they really believe that it's not about me, it's not about us at all. It's about, it's about the Lord. It's about what He's doing and that He is fully in control. And I want to start off today with a passage. We're going to be all over the Bible today because there's not really just one text that talks about gentleness or meekness. But I want to begin today in Luke chapter 18. You can turn there if you want. We're just going to read verses 1 to 8 or you can just listen as I read. I'll be reading out of the New Living Translation today. And we've heard this before in, in our, when we've gone through the Gospels. Luke 18 verse 1. One day Jesus told his disciples a story to show that they should always pray and never give up. There was a judge in a certain city, he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. Now I thought, what an interesting commentary that Jesus is making about the leaders that we elect and allow to lead us. You know, there's a judge, and he doesn't care about people or fear God. Why he's in power, who knows? But so be the case. And the widow in that city came to him repeatedly saying, give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. The judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge, even who even rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think that God will surely give justice to his chosen people? who cry out to him day and night. He will, keep, will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them and quickly. But when the Son of Man returns, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? So this is one of those parables, one of those stories where, where Jesus is saying, if human people act this way, how much more so will your lovingly Heavenly Father do good things for those who ask? God is not like an evil judge who has to be pestered and has to be constantly bothered in order to get the right things. God loves us. God is aware of our need before we even verbalize it. And he wants to respond. But he closes with, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? And I believe this directly relates to gentleness because the faith part here is trusting and waiting patiently upon the Lord that he will give us what we need in the proper time. That we don't have to be out there trying to orchestrate things to work together for our best good, but that God has our back. God knows our situation. God is at work. That's where the trust and the patience come in, comes in. Do we have faith that God will bring about justice without us having to hound him or nag him or without us having to take matters into our own hands? This is what gentleness reflects, and this is what gentleness acknowledges. So I want to begin today by suggesting that gentleness is about trusting three things about God. And it's very similar to some of the other fruit of the Spirit that we've talked about, because a lot of these things overlap. This one in particular. I think first and foundational, trusting God for His goodness. Gentleness is the direct result of trusting that God is good. As we said Recently, in one of the sermons in the last two weeks, if you don't believe that God is ultimately good, you will never trust him. 
You will always be suspicious of what he does. You will always question whether he really knows what he's doing if you don't believe that he has a good heart and that he has the power to do whatever he wants. It's not, as we said, just that he has good intentions and good motivation. He also has the power to do exactly what he wants to do. God is good and working all things together for good. That's what Romans 8.28 exclaims. For God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to God's purpose. That's why when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus kind of sparred with him and said, why, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Meaning, like, do you really understand what you're saying? Like, in essence, you're, you're proclaiming my divinity because only God is good and all that he does flows out of his character, his nature. That's his DNA. And if you're saying that about me, then, man, you've already understood it's not about commandment keeping. It's about a relationship with our Heavenly Father through me. Powerful words. Do we trust that God's plan for us is good, that his intentions are good, and that he has the power to fulfill and execute each plan? That's the first thing. The second thing is providence, trusting God's providence. And by providence, I mean that God divinely allows things, and what he allows is divinely purposeful. Whatever God allows, he has a purpose behind that. Not everything that God allows is good. <clears throat> God allows sin in the world. Sin is obviously not a reflection of his divine purpose and plan. But the power of God is such that he can bring good out of, even out of sure evil. He can take whatever hand Satan deals us and the world, whatever Satan does to convolute and to destroy and to scatter, God can weave together and bring purpose and meaning. That's the power of God. And so providence is believing that God allows things for a divine purpose. We were saying recently also in another sermon that because the results of God's sovereignty, the fact that God is in control over everything, are often delayed, meaning we don't often see what God is working together for good right, uh, right away, waiting remains an act of faith. We have to trust and wait in faith that in the end things will make sense. In the end we will see the purpose and the meaning, even if right now everything's cloudy and we're like, God, where in the world are you and what are you doing? We believe that results will occur one day. We believe that one day we will know perfectly just as we are fully known. Now we look in the glass dimly. Everything's kind of blurry, but one day we will see face to face. And we will know in full, just as Scripture says, we, we are known perfectly. By waiting on God, we affirm our belief in His providence, that He has a divine purpose. And we reflect and acknowledge that by patiently waiting and trusting that he knows what he's doing, that he's good, that he will bring about his purpose. And so we, we trust his timetable. We hope in heaven, waiting on God's, <clears throat> waiting on God's inseparably bound to our belief in the sovereignty of God, and about the good that he promises, that God is ultimately in charge, 
even though it seems like a lot of world leaders are in charge right now, or that Satan is having a heyday, God is in charge. I like what Augustine once said. He said, trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence. Trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to God's providence. Well, we kind of see the highs and the lows of this in Scripture, and particularly in Jesus' life. Palm Sunday, the Gospels tell us that he rode into Jerusalem, and, and the Scripture says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, which was a symbol of peace, because if he was coming in war, he would have been on a stallion. And he came displaying gentleness. He came accepting the accolades of the crowd, knowing that within a week they were going to yell, crucify him, and call for his death. And so here he's really riding upon their praise. And a few days later, he's in the garden sweating drops of blood, saying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet not what I want, but thy will be done. Why? Because he trusted in God's providence. He trusted that God has a purpose and a plan for everything. And in his humanity, he modeled for us what it means to trust in the Heavenly Father, even though the answers and the reasons and the purpose behind things is not always readily apparent to us. That's what Jesus modeled for us. One person said, Divine providence makes no sense when measured by the yardstick of the human mentality. Paul said in Corinthians, the wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world. It makes no sense. Another person said, we are apt to believe in providence so long as we get our own way. But if things go awry, then we quickly cry out, where's God? You know, when, when everything's going well, like, oh, God is faithful, God is sovereign, providence, yeah. But when things start going, we're like, God, what's going on? This isn't the game plan. I didn't get the, the notes for this. Like, what are you doing? Where are you? It's easy to trust God's providence in good situations. I read a story this week. It said when the plane leveled out at 14,500 feet, Joan Murray took a deep breath and jumped out the door. The bank executive from Charlotte, North Carolina, was enjoying her free fall through the air until she pulled the ripcord for her parachute and nothing happened. Just about then, she had an extreme rush of adrenaline. Yeah, I guess so. But she didn't panic. She knew that she had a backup parachute. She was falling 120 miles per hour when she released the reserve chute. It opened just fine. But she lost her bearings, and in her struggle to right herself, she deflated the chute. While the chute briefly slowed her descent... She continued to fall at 80 miles per hour. She struck the earth with a violent blow, shattering her right side and jarring the fillings from her teeth. She was barely conscious and her heart was failing. Just when it seemed things couldn't get much worse, she realized that she had fallen into a mound of fire ants. And they didn't appreciate her disturbing their solitude. They stung her in all about 200 times before the paramedics arrived. 
But things aren't always as they seem. The doctors that treated Joan believe that the ants actually saved her life. They theorized that the stings of the ants shocked her heart enough to keep it beating. You know, on the surface, we're like, God, what in the world? Are you kidding me? This is Alexander's horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. You know, how could things get any worse? You know, I wouldn't have any luck at all if I didn't have bad luck. You know, like, what is going on? But God is always doing things. God is always in charge. God is always at work. And so we have to believe in his providence. And the final one, which we've already danced around and talked about, is trusting in God's sovereignty. If we are to be gentle people, we have to believe and trust in God's goodness. We have to trust in his providence, and we have to trust in his sovereignty. Again, sovereignty meaning that he is in control of all things. He is the ultimate one in control. David declares that in the Psalms. Psalms 47, verse 8. God reigns over the nations. He sits on his holy throne. A, a magistrate in power sits when they're in control. If they don't feel they're in control, they're up and they're trying to do things. But God sits because he is fully in control and the universe keeps spinning and all is under his control as he sits quietly and peacefully in charge. Psalm 93.1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord has clothed and girded himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. I love what pastor and author Chuck Swindoll says. He says, anything under God's control is never out of control. Anything under God's control, which is everything, is never out of control. So it's just about our perspective. It's about whether we are looking through God's eyes or through our own flawed human eyes. And so I want to begin today by asserting to you that ultimately gentleness is about resting in God's goodness in his providence, and in his sovereignty. Resting, waiting, trusting. That's what equals gentleness. Resting, waiting, and trusting. And so if I am exercising those things in my life, if you are, good chances are, that will result in us being gentle people. Again, not people who are powerless to do things on our own, but people who realize that if God is in charge rather than us, it's going to turn out a lot better. And realizing also that um, the people around us and the world at large responds a lot more favorably to a gentle person than to an arrogant, assertive, you know, power-gripping person that's constantly frenzied trying to control people and situations. I love what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty nine. It's one of the few times that he, he really reveals his heart. He says, Come unto me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and humble at heart. At my core, my very nature, I am gentle and humble at heart. And you shall find rest for your souls. You shall find rest. We can learn a lot from Jesus' earthly example in submission to the Heavenly Father. The cults look at that as, well, this clearly is speaking that he's human and not divine because look at how he's constantly relying upon his heavenly father and praying. Just that he's doing that for our benefit, showing us in our humanity how we find strength, how we draw upon the resources of the heavenly father. Philippians 2, although he was equal with God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, as an entitlement 
that he would flaunt, but he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what we learn about our Savior. In his waiting upon the Father in dependence upon him for all of his needs, he models for us what gentleness is all about. So we become gentle people by trusting in the goodness and the providence and the sovereignty of God. In terms of gentleness as it relates to us, three quick points that I want to make about it. First of all, gentleness is a requirement of church leadership. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't always translate in the church today. Many churches at which I have served over 35 years have appointed leaders in place who are CEOs of a corporation or people who have a lot of money and it would be good to have them on the board or the deacons or the elders because you know, they'll, they'll donate a lot of money to the ministries and stuff. Or, you know, all of these earthly standards of success that we think equate to spiritual success. And yet, Scripture says something quite different. First Timothy 3. Not that somebody can't be wealthy and successful and gentle, but the gentleness and the spiritual qualities ha- trump anything on an earthly level. Paul speaks to Timothy. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be a church leader, he desires an honorable position. So a church leader must be a man whose wife is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, and have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker or be violent. He must be gentle and not quarrelsome, and not love money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. For if a man cannot manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Second Timothy 2, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So, The very people who are attacking you and who are degrading you, those are the people that you have to respond to in gentleness. If perhaps God might grant them repentance that leads to the knowledge of the truth. Because more importantly than justifying and vindicating yourself is the salvation of a person. You can win the argument and lose the person. But how much more important to win the person for the kingdom and not really care about your ego. And they come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So gentleness, first of all, as it relates to us, is a requirement for church leaders. Out of all the things that we look for, don't forget gentleness. Gentleness is often overlooked. We don't equate gentleness with leadership, but it is the most important thing. Secondly, gentleness is the way that we're called to relate to others. Gentleness is the way that we're called to relate to others. Paul says in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 to 3. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Showing tolerance for one another in love being diligent to preserve in unity, in the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. 
Colossians 3, 12 to 14. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why is patience always bundled with gentleness? Because again, it takes patience to wait for God to do what we want him to do. It's hard to be gentle when we're trying to do that ourselves and, and microwave it and make it happen right away in our timetable. So to be gentle takes patience with all gentleness and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all of these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And finally, Galatians 6.1. Brothers and sisters, even if anyone is caught in any sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Not a spirit of, I told you so, you loser. I, I, I told you you're going to do this. Gosh, you're always blowing it. You know, I'm so righteous and I'm going to just put you. No, you restore them in gentleness. As Paul said, there but by the grace of God go I and go you. As Paul says, such were some of you. But now, by God's grace, you've been redeemed, you've been saved, you've been cleansed. Like, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. There is no air of superiority about how we're better than someone else. We all are all in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. And so, we restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted by pride to think, I'm all that. Because we're not all that. We're only what we are by the grace of God and by his mercy. There's a lady named Adele Calhoun, and I haven't read her pamphlet, but she's got a spiritual disciplines handbook called Practices That Transform Us. And I love what she said. She said, gentleness means becoming like Jesus in his willingness to choose the hidden way of love rather than the way of power. The hidden way of love. Gentleness is the hidden way of love rather than power-seeking, power-grabbing. Powerful words. Well, the third thing, gentleness is not only a requirement of church leadership, it's not only the way that we're called to relate to others, it's the way that we draw others into the kingdom. And I think we forget this. Gentleness is the way that we win people into the kingdom of God. James 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Meaning God's wisdom and our good deeds are best packaged in gentleness. Most winsome when conveyed in gentleness. Not assertiveness, not know-it-all, but gentleness. Matthew 5.5, 5, blessed are the gentle, for they will what? Inherit the earth. Sounds pretty good. You want to have victory in life? You want to conquer? You want to be successful? Be gentle. Don't be climbing the ladder only to get to the top and realize that it's resting upon the wrong thing and that all of your efforts have been in vain. You've been furiously going through life, pushing other people down and climbing up, only get to the top and realizing it's not what you had hoped it would be. The gentle will inherit the earth, not the schemers, not the plotters, not the connivers, not the extortionists, the gentle. Psalm 18, verse 35. You have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand upholds me. I love this last line. 
and your gentleness makes me great. The gentleness that God gives to us, that's what makes us great. The gentleness that God gives to us, that's what makes us great. And that's what makes us winsome to other people. Philippians 4, 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all people. The Lord is near. Not only God is physically near and present and available to help us in all situations, but his return is near. It's at hand. And as gentle people, we reflect that. We're not all out of control and up in arms because the, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we're worried it's going to drag us with it. No, we are gentle, peaceful people because God is near. He's right at hand. He's available to us right now here in this room and his return is imminent. And we believe that. We're banking on that with all that we are and have. How important that is. I love what Peter says to wives in 1 Peter 3, and please understand the same could be said about husbands, and I have a story about that once I read this. In the same way, you wives must accept the authority of your husbands. Then even if some of them refuse to obey the good news, your godly lives will speak to them without any words. They will be won over by observing your pure and reverent lives. Don't be concerned about outward beauty and fancy hairstyles and expensive jewelry or beautiful clothes, you should clothe yourselves instead with the beauty that comes from within, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious to God. We were studying this Friday morning, men's group, 6.30 every Friday, right behind that door in the conference room, and Steve Roth said, that's my story. And I meet every week or every month with a bunch of guys in Santa Barbara, and there were like two or three other guys in the group that said, that's my story as well. Like, our wives brought us deeper. They brought us into the kingdom and they brought us deeper into God's word because it was their, their beauty and their example that made us hunger for something more. And like, that's beautiful. So this isn't sexist language. It's not like the wives have to do this and the husbands. No, it, this, is, this is reciprocal. Our example leads others. Later on in 1 Peter 3, not speaking of husbands and wives, but all people in general, Peter says... But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear your persecutors, intimidation. And do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who will revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Put to shame because even though people poke at us and know all of our buttons, they don't get the reaction they're looking for. We respond in graciousness. We respond in gentleness. We respond in love. And people have, they like, who are you? And what power do you have? And we, we, we're already preaching the gospel without even opening the Bible by our very lives. That's the power of the gospel. Ray Ortland uh, used to be one of my favorite authors and pastors. He was uh, senior pastor of Lake Avenue Congregational Church in Pasadena for 20 years between 1959 and 1979, before a lot of you were even born. He said once, one of Christianity's most brilliant theologians, Jonathan Edwards, taught us that gentleness, which he called a lamb-like or dove-like spirit, 
is not an optional extra, but instead it is the true and distinguishing disposition of the heart of Christians. In other words, gentleness is the most Christian we can be, the most Christian way we can be. I wonder what we think of that. Certainly none of us oppose gentleness, but do we esteem gentleness? What he's saying there is like, that's good for other people, but not for me. You know, like, that's a good thing for you to practice, but I'm going to do something else. That's not my gift. Certainly we don't oppose gentleness, but we, we, do we esteem it? Have we moved all of our chips into the gentleness square as if our very future depends on how gentle we prove to be? To the degree that we have renounced pushiness, and embrace gentleness, we are making the real Jesus visible in our world today. We know about Jesus' beliefs and convictions, his mission and miracles, his death and resurrection and second coming, but the one and only time he opened up his chest, so to speak, to reveal his heart, his core being, who he is and always will be way down deep, how did he, des- how did he describe himself? As gentle. And lowly, humble. Therefore, gentleness isn't a strategy that God resorts to now and then. Gentleness is who God is uh, at the most profound level of his being. We would never believe this if Jesus hadn't told us. We've parachuted into a universe where gentleness is the ultimate reality, now and forever. No wonder that true followers of Jesus stand out in their, for their gentleness. Paul says in Philippians that you and I stand out as stars in a dark universe, as lights for the world because of our example. Friends, we're really good at quoting scripture and arguing apologetically and this and that and the other, but it's a lot harder to, to win people into the kingdom by the way that we live our lives. But may I suggest, and I say this to myself as much as I say it to you, that that's where it starts. Because if you're not leading by how you live, your words, like 1 Corinthians 13, are just a, a, a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. People are just like, noise, just quit the words, show me, live it. You know, don't, don't say it, live it. Show me by your example. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And so, I'll, I like to close every sermon with the gospel. And the gospel is that it's, it's, it's really not about words. It's about, it's about the life. Because if, if Jesus Christ has really transformed my life and transformed your it, it ought to make a difference. It ought to be something visible, perceptible, tangible that people pick up on. And that's where it starts. And that's not set in condemnation. That's set in hope that it's not about me and it's not about you. It's about the change that God is working in us. And so as Peter was saying, let, let the sweetness the sweet aroma of a gentle and quiet spirit that's pleasing to God and lived out and surrendered to God be the way that we win people in and not, you know, banging them over the head with a hundred, you know, scriptures that we learn from navigators or any other, you know, that's all good. It's all got its place, but it's noise if it's not backed up with a gentle spirit. Let's pray.